we're continuing in our uh, Lenten series, and if you're wondering what Lenten means, I'm guessing you're not alone in the room. It's one of those church words we like to throw around and never explain, just to make uh, things mysterious, but actually I'm going to explain it right now. Lent is to Easter what Advent is to Christmas. It's 40 days where we prepare and get excited about Easter and the meaning of what Easter is, Resurrection Sunday. And so we're in the middle of this 40 days, and we're going to jump right in today, Matthew 27, 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Right before this, Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. Then the chief priests and other Jewish religious leaders bring their accusations against Jesus. And throughout all of this, Jesus is silent. He doesn't defend himself against their accusations. Pilate, watching all this, is amazed. He can't believe that Jesus isn't defending himself. And Pilate is no dummy. He recognizes that the charges against Jesus are baseless. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong and that these Jewish leaders are just envious of Jesus and the connection that Jesus has with his people. Pilate doesn't want innocent blood on his hands. Even his wife sends him a message saying that she's had disturbing dreams and tells him have nothing to do with this innocent man. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but he's in a tight spot. He's in a bind. Because if he releases him, there could be trouble, even a riot. But Pilate is also shrewd, and he has already figured out a way to pass the buck. Pilate concocts a clever solution to avoid having to make the decision himself. It's a magnanimous gesture that will let him avoid the difficult situation entirely. Every year, as a gesture of goodwill, the Roman governor releases a prisoner chosen by the crowds. So he gives the choice to the people. It's American Idol. It's Dancing with the Stars. Text your vote in now. The notorious criminal Barabbas or Jesus. And the crowd cries, Barabbas. Pilate's clever plan backfires. The chief priests and other religious leaders have infiltrated the crowd and persuaded them to ask for Barabbas' release. Pilate's now on his heels. He's lost control of the situation and the crowd. But what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Pilate asks, why? Crucify him. What crime has he committed? Crucify him. The crowd just gets louder and louder. Crucify him. Pilate, recognizing the situation is spiraling out of control, symbolically washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is on you. 
And then the crowd responds in Matthew 27, 25, in what to me is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Imagine us saying this together. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. What? You imagine those words coming out of your mouth? You imagine me standing up here saying, let his blood be on me, let his blood be on Heather. Heather's shaking her head, no. Let his blood be on Sasha, I don't know if she's in here. Let his blood be on Maya. Can you imagine those words coming out of your mouth? And the words of the great Ron Burgundy, boy, that escalated quickly. Pilate releases Barabbas to the crowd and hands Jesus over to be flogged and crucified. Crowds have a strange effect on us, don't they? Personally, if I'm honest, I'm always a little wary when I see a crowd gathering. The apartment, I just heard a mm-hmm. <laughs> the apartment where my family and I lived in Ukraine was a very typical Soviet-style block apartment building. Nine stories with four stairwells. We lived on the fourth floor. But outside each stairwell was a set of benches. If the weather was nice, neighbors would sit outside and chat. If a resident passed away, their funeral would be held right there and their coffin placed on one of the benches. That's real communal living for you. I, along with some of my neighbors, parked my car in a garage across the street from our building. It was about a five, seven-minute walk. One night as I was walking home, I was walking along with one of my neighbors who had just parked his car as well. And as we rounded the corner of our building, we saw that nearly every female adult resident living in our entryway was gathered around those benches in deep conversation. We looked at each other, and without skipping a beat and with a complete deadpan delivery, he muttered under his breath, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good for us. We're inherently wary of crowds, aren't we? Why? Because in crowds, we often get emboldened to do or say things that we probably would not do or say if we were alone. Sometimes that's a good thing. Here's a picture of my hometown, Birdyansk. Peaceful protests. Um, Together, every day at noon, 7 p.m. our time, they find the strength and courage together to walk this enormous Ukrainian flag down the main street of Birdyansk to the Sea of Azov, singing songs to protest against the Russian invaders and occupiers until we win. Chanting, Birdyansk is Ukraine. But sometimes we get swept up in the crowd, don't we? When the crowd becomes a mob, and suddenly we are doing and saying things that will later bring us shame and regret. The mob that stormed and attacked the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021, comes to mind. How many people in the crowd who are chanting for Barabbas' release and Jesus' crucifixion were also in the crowd when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. On that day, the gathered crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible doesn't tell us if some of the same folks were present in both of the crowds, one shouting Hosanna and the other shouting crucify him. But I'm guessing there were. Barabbas is released, and Jesus is turned over to be flogged and crucified. Which brings us back to the passage from Matthew 27, 
that we read in the beginning. The flogging was ordered. The crucifixion was ordered. But what happened in the in-between, the mocking, the beating, the spitting on him, wasn't. The Lenten video series that we've been watching in Sunday school is done by a guy named Kyle Eidelman. He says when he read the passage that we read today, he went from sad to angry. Does that resonate with you? This was uncalled for. This was unnecessary. This was over the top. This should never have been allowed to happen. We understand that Jesus had to die for our sins. There's no forgiveness without blood. But why did God allow his son to be beaten, tortured, mocked, dressed up, and ridiculed, and spat upon? Has anybody here ever been spit on? Be honest, I've been spit on. Smart mouth gets you in trouble. And I will be honest with you, it still stings to this day. But when I read this passage, I am immediately reminded of words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Jesus is recorded to have said seven different things from the cross. Anybody have a guess of which one I'm thinking about right now? Shout it out. Yep. Thanks, Sandy. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Those are some of the most comforting, merciful, loving words ever put to paper. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How often can that be said of us? I don't know what prompted those Russian soldiers to be so cruel, to mock, beat, and spit on Jesus. Someone that they probably did not know existed until he had been turned over into their hands. So if it wasn't personal hate or anger towards Jesus, maybe it was hate or anger redirected onto Jesus. Maybe they hated their job. Maybe they hated having to live in this part of the world, this desert. Maybe they hated the Jesus people, the Jewish people, and they took it out on Jesus. What we do know is that Jesus didn't deserve any of this. He didn't deserve to be mocked, beaten, or spat on. And yet, he allowed it to happen. God allowed it to happen. At any moment, Jesus could have put a stop to what was happening to him. And Scripture actually tells us of a time early in Jesus' ministry when he did just that. Jesus' ministry began with his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist. When John sees him, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After his baptism, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. And we'll pick up the story there in Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, 
Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal thyself. Sorry, King James Version, sneaking in there. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What got them so angry? Jesus was suggesting that the grace and favor of God that the folks of Nazareth believed was their divine birthright as Israelites, as God's people, might be withheld from them and instead extended to the Gentiles. Them's fighting words. They get so angry that they forcibly remove Jesus from the synagogue and then the town. The Bible says they drove him out. An angry mob driving Jesus out of the town involves a lot of pushing, a lot of shoving, possibly even some dragging. They intend to throw Jesus off the cliff and they get him out of the synagogue, out of the town, all the way to the edge of the cliff. All that remains is to toss him over. But it's not Jesus' time. He has just started his ministry. There will come a time when he will place himself in the hands of men and at their mercy. That was what we read about at the beginning of the day from Matthew 27. But that is not this day. The Bible says that Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on about his business. That's a bona fide miracle. One minute they're manhandling him to throw him off a cliff, and the next minute he walks untouched, unmolested through that very same crowd. So when we read this passage from Matthew 27, where the soldiers stripped Jesus, put a crown of thorns on his head, gave him a robe and a cestor, so as to mock him as king of the Jews, Jesus allowed all of that to happen. God allowed his son to be mocked, mistreated, beaten, and humiliated. Jesus suffered all of that willingly. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read today's passage again, and we're going to do something a little unusual in order to really dwell in the significance of this passage. We're going to make it a responsive reading. I'm going to read, and when I pause, together we will say these three words. Jesus suffered willingly. That's going to be our cadence. Say it with me. Jesus suffered willingly. All right, let's. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Jesus suffered willingly. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Jesus suffered willingly. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. 
Jesus suffered willingly. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Jesus suffered willingly. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Jesus suffered willingly. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus suffered willingly. What does that mean to us, that Jesus suffered willingly? We serve a God who understands our pain and heartache. We serve a God who understands our loss and our suffering. Hebrews 4.15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I really like the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage in his version of the message. He puts it like this. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. We have ready access both to Jesus and to God the Father through Jesus. I love that paraphrase. Jesus, the God we serve, is not out of touch with our reality. A reality, by the way, that involves a lot of suffering. Jesus has been through it all. He has experienced it all. He has seen it all. But without sin. We serve a God who understands our pain and suffering because he has experienced it. And he is offering to us mercy and help. We serve a God who understands. What's happening in Ukraine right now is hard for me to comprehend. The level of loss and suffering and pain is overwhelming. And I'm guessing every one of us has asked God the same question. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen. Intervene. Make it stop. Sometimes these situations even tempt us to reject God. We may say something along the lines of, I don't know if God does or doesn't exist, but I do know that I don't want to serve a God who would allow this to happen in Ukraine. In an article in the Atlantic Magazine, Peter Warner tells the story of Philip Yancey visiting Newtown, Connecticut, the scene of a mass killing at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Twenty children and six teachers and staff were gunned down. He read profiles of the children, their pets, their hobbies, their sports heroes, and he tried to offer some words of comfort to what he called a sorrow-drenched community. Yancey told the parents in the, office that, in the audience that biblically God grieves as much as they do that God loves their children as much as they do, and that God is deeply pained by the state of this broken world. 
To his surprise, he found his faith affirmed rather than shattered. He witnessed in person something the theologian Miroslav Volf wrote on the day after the Newtown shootings. Those who observe suffering are tempted to reject God. Those who experience it often cannot give up on God, their solace and their agony. Jesus himself says to us, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Look at how Paul describes the God we serve, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. He is the source, the spring, the well from which compassion and comfort originate. Now look at how God acts. He comforts us in all our troubles. He pours out that comfort over us. And finally, look at how God empowers us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We become conduits for God's compassion and comfort as it fills us up and overflows into the lives of others. And Paul doesn't sugarcoat it. We are going to share in the sufferings of Jesus. But his comfort will also abound to us and through us. May the sufferings of this life strengthen your faith and draw you closer to Jesus. Come quick, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.